I also love the, the story of the prodigal son and, uh, and the, the love of the father for the son as he comes over the hill and the father's waiting for him. And uh, just the, the, he's trying to say, hey, I'm, father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've, I've done this and, and it, the father's not hearing any of it. Bring the best robe. Bring my, the, my ring and, and everything. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's celebrate because my son has come home. And this, this kind of love that we see in these stories is the love that God has for us. And He is for us. And I think it's important for us to understand how much God is for us. Uh, sometimes we can listen to the whispering of the enemy in our ear that God is somehow against us. But if you're a child of God, God is for you. Uh, he loves you desperately. And uh, if you're lost, he loves you. <laughs> he wants you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So um, the, the scripture here in, in the Gospel of Luke describes the events leading up uh, to Jesus' eventual death. It doesn't quite get to the death, but uh, in these events, you see something of the character of Jesus. I, I heard somebody once say, you, you, don't, you know what a man's like when you see him in hot water, when the pressure's turned up. You find out what he's really made of. Well, you see Jesus in, in this uh, incredibly difficult time of his life, and you just see the glory and the splendor of somebody who has a character unlike any other. Uh, Jesus is truly great. And uh, so uh, as we look at Jesus' greatness and how he responds to the disciples and even to his enemies, you see God's incredible love for us and the fact that he's for us. Uh, so uh, we need to thank him and praise him and follow him as a response to the greatness uh, of Jesus and what he's done for us. The title of my message is The Greatness of Jesus. And uh, look with me at Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was drawing near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for an opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us so that we can eat it. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. That was unusual, because usually women did that. He said, Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? There he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So he went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and having given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and 
gave thanks, broke it, and gave to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. But look, the hand of one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do this thing. Then a dispute among them about who should be considered the greatest happened. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles dominate them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is the greatest among you must become the youngest. Whoever leads, like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are the ones who stood by me in my trials. I bestowed on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has, has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And, you know, he denies that he'll do that. Um, but, and then uh, Jesus gives him some instructions. Take your money bag, take your clothes, uh, get, your, get your swords and all of that. And then pick it up in verse 39. He says, he went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. As you know, they fall asleep and don't pray. And verse 46, he says to them, why are you sleeping? He asked, get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, suddenly a mob was there, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this, and touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, temple police, and the elders who had come, uh, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour in the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Uh, they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard, sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the firelight and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with him, since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things against him. 
When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony? They said, we, See, we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. The greatness of Jesus. Uh, what do we need to learn about his greatness? Well, first of all, I want you to see that Jesus suffers. Jesus suffers. Um, if you look in verse 1, you see the word Passover. If you look in verse 7, in verse 8, you see the word Passover. If you look in verse 11, you see the word Passover. If you look in verse 13, you see the word Passover. If you look in verse 14, you see the word Passover. But look at verse 14. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the verb there, suffer, is the sister word to the word Passover. So Jesus says, Passover, 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 I suffer. But it, the word literally in the Greek is Pascha, 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 Pasco. Okay? So it, there was a word play there. And Jesus is saying, Hey, listen up. We're celebrating the Passover, and the Passover is about me. And I'm getting ready to suffer. And he says, and I will fulfill what the Old Testament has said. So Jesus suffers. He suffers on the cross. And we we saw him suffering the abuse that took place. But did you know that not only did Jesus suffer for our sins so that we could be saved, but Jesus continues to suffer when we suffer. And one of the amazing things to me As you look at at the gospel accounts, you see Jesus being concerned about other people. Uh, And and you remember when Paul uh, was persecuting the church and on the Damascus Road, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Jesus suffers when we suffer. He sees Mary and Martha weeping and knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And uh, the, the Bible says his spirit is stirred deeply within him. And then it says, Jesus wept. Jesus suffers when we suffer. And Jesus suffers for us on our behalf. Um, He suffered at the cross and, of course, rose again so that we could have eternal life. But he continues to suffer when we suffer. Isn't that a wonderful thing about Jesus? Um, You suffer when your kids are sick, don't you? Um, Maybe some of you might be grandkids if you're keeping the grandkids. But um, I was reminded when I went up and visited Kelly and Luis and, and saw little Gabriella uh, suffering and, and struggling. And, and just it just brought back so many memories of taking care of my kids when they were sick when they were little. And they weren't that sick when they were little. But uh, and then, of, of course, of Megan and... and um, <clears throat> Your parent, as a parent, you suffer when your kids suffer, don't you? Um, you? You wish sometimes that you could take their place, that you could suffer uh, in their stead. Uh, Jesus has that kind of heart toward us. 
And that's one of the great things about Jesus. I'm so glad I'm a child of God uh, because he cares for me. And uh, his suffering and his care. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Um, Have you ever heard somebody pray for you with effectual, fervent prayer? Maybe there were tears. If you haven't, that's a, that's a great experience to have. Now, hopefully you're not in a position where you need that kind of prayer. But when you are, what a comfort to have that brother or sister in Christ who will intercede for you. And uh, what, a, what a, a special feeling that is to know that somebody cares for you in that way. Um, Jesus intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. That cannot be uttered. That's the heart of of Christ toward us. Um, Jesus suffers when we suffer. Praise his name. Glorify him. Uh, Thank him that he feels the feeling of our infirmity. And choose to live for him and honor him because of his goodness. So Jesus suffers. Secondly, Jesus rules. What do we need to learn about his greatness? He suffers. He rules. Look at what he says in verse 16. He's talking about the, the Last Supper, the Passover, and so forth. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled. There's that word, fulfilled. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, you see that over and over and over again. Uh, what's he talking about? Well, Jesus is talking about the rule that he will have as the Messiah. Now, the kingdom of God is getting ready to come, but it's going to come in a way that they don't quite expect. Uh, You see, they're expecting this worldwide rule of the Messiah, and yes, that is still future. When Jesus comes back uh, at the second coming uh, to rule and to reign on this earth, but Jesus actually reigns now in the heart's in minds of his people. He's also sovereign on the throne of God. He is in control of the affairs of this life. Yes, the devil's given some free reign right now, but Jesus is ultimately in control. Uh, We've been studying the book of Job, and guess what? The devil had to ask permission before he messed with Job. I want to tell you something. Jesus is in control. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is in charge. Aren't you glad? It's ultimately not people in Washington. It's ultimately not people overseas who are ruling overseas. Jesus Christ is in control. And this earth is ultimately in his hand. You know how Jesus brought about his kingdom? It came about through his death on the cross. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the curse at the cross. And Jesus, through his cross, the Bible says in Colossians, led his enemies on public display. He won a great victory. And history itself is turned back. And now it's moving toward. Before, it had had been disrupted in the Garden of Eden. And, And sin had reigned from Adam until Christ. But at the cross, Jesus began to reign in a new way. Because he had conquered sin and death 
forever. And the Bible says that Satan and his demons were led on public display. Just like the Romans carried their captives behind them. Jesus, figuratively speaking, is carrying his captives behind him. He's saying, hey, listen, devil, you are defeated. You have no power. The things that you have used against the people that God loves are gone because I've defeated sin. I've defeated death. And I have assured your future in the lake of fire. Jesus is the king. He rules. He reigns. And uh, what a wonderful thing. Uh, Jesus is talking about uh, eating it in the kingdom. He's looking forward to that time when that kingdom is fulfilled. Uh, But he's reminding them, and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he's kind of instituting the Lord's Supper, this doing remembrance of me here. Um, We are remembering uh, what Jesus did for us, but we're also remembering the fact that Jesus is the king, and the king is coming, and he's going to set up his throne, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and creation itself will be healed. The Bible says that creation groans, awaiting for the adoption of the sons of God. Um, Jesus will, will transform creation. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but if things are going to be very different. Jesus rules, and then there'll be an eventual new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and Jesus will reign at the Father's right hand. So praise him, thank him, follow him. Submit to his rule and bring glory and honor to him in your life. The greatness of Jesus, what do we need to learn? Jesus suffers, Jesus rules, thirdly, Jesus gives. There's a word play that's going on in, in this chapter of Scripture, and um, you can see it. The word for betray literally means to give over in the, in the Greek. So Jesus is giving of himself while Judas is giving him over. Jesus, Judas is betraying him. Isn't that the heart of Jesus toward those who are his enemies? And I praise God for it because um, the Bible says we were enemies of Christ, but God redeemed us to himself through Jesus. Um, as Judas is making plans to betray Jesus, Jesus is making plans. <laughs> and he is giving of himself, ultimately at the cross. But he's giving of himself in small ways as well, too, leading up to the cross. And isn't it amazing? Sometimes the, the enemy in this world with their wicked, evil plans, they think, boy, we've got God uh, somehow uh, sideswiped. We've taken care of God's plan. We've We've uh, put God to the side. Listen, I'm going to tell you, there's nobody putting God to the side. God is ultimately in charge, and he has a plan. And Jesus is, he says, no one takes my life from me. See, they thought they were taking it. Jesus says, no one's taking it from me. I am laying it down. I, I, I am doing this as my plan. Look at verse 19. He took bread and thanks, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. 
Then in verse 20, he says, This cup is the new covenant established in my blood. It is shed for you. Jesus is giving of himself at the cross for our sin. Praise God for it. What a generous heart Jesus had to take the wrath of God upon himself to satisfy his justice in our place. But the giving doesn't stop there. Jesus served his disciples. He's setting an example. Now, if I knew I was going to a cross, I probably wouldn't be caring about somebody else's feet. But Jesus acts as a servant. Verse 27, who is greater? The one at the table, the one serving. Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is giving of himself in service. And isn't it an amazing thing that as Jesus intercedes for us, he is giving of his time? Have you ever thought about that? There's been some people who wouldn't give me the time of day. I don't know about you. Uh, Isn't it amazing that the sovereign of the universe carves out time for me and for you? And he intercedes for us. He's serving us. Wow. Wow. Uh, every time you confess your sins, Jesus is figuratively speaking, washing your feet. You remember what the discussion he had with Peter? This is it's not here in this chapter, it's in the book of John, but uh, this chapter just alludes to it quickly. Um, Jesus is washing their feet. Peter says, You can't wash my feet. Jesus said, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So, well, wash all of it. No, you don't need all of yourself washed, you just need your feet washed. And it's a picture when somebody's saved, you don't have to get re-saved. You just need your fellowship restored. And so every time you confess your sin to God, Jesus provides the cleansing that you need to have that fellowship restored. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He serves us. And look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. (laughs) Someday I need to do a sermon series on on, uh, the word B-U-T. But. (laughs) Aren't you glad that the things of this life that are difficult and hard are not all there is to say about the matter? God intervenes. Jesus says, this is what Satan has planned for you. How about passing out a tract that says Satan has a horrible plan for your life? That's what he's saying. Satan wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to destroy your life, Peter. But I have prayed for you. That's the heart of Jesus. Giving, giving, giving. Jesus is about to go to a cross, and who's he thinking about? Somebody else. (laughs) Is that not awesome? Then look look down at verse 40. Now they're at the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, all that. And uh, verse 40, Luke records this detail at the beginning before they pray. This is what Jesus says to them. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter temptation. You have Jesus concerned about them again. He's going to the cross, and yet he's concerned about their temptation. Pray 
that you won't enter into temptation. He knows exactly the temptation they're going to face. When he gets arrested, they're all going to forsake him. He knows the temptation. Peter's, even though Peter denied, Lord, I'll never do that. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to face. Pray so that you won't enter temptation. Uh, Luke gives us an abbreviated account. Jesus goes and uh, finds him sleep, finds him sleeping. Verse 46, he says, Why are you sleeping? Ask them, get up and pray so that you won't enter temptation. Jesus is praying and great sweat drops of blood have come and he's agonizing, but he's still thinking of other people. That's a giving heart of our great Savior. Then Peter denies him three times. Verse 61, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, you may think, yeah, I don't know if you remember when you were, if you were raised in church and you, you got the skunk eye from your parents on, in church. And I knew if uh, Dad looked over and gave me that look, and I did get a few of those looks, uh, I was in trouble when I got home. <clears throat> and so, uh, but I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. As Jesus looks at him, again, he's thinking of other people, right? Here he is, he's being tried, he's in the kangaroo court, he's about to go to a cross, and he's still thinking of other people. I think he looks at Peter because he wants him to be reminded of what he said. Not, and I told you so, oh yeah, Peter, you said you weren't going to do it, but you've done it. Not that. Why did Jesus mention it to him in the first place? He says, when you turn, go encourage your brothers. See, Jesus wanted him to remember in his moment of failure that he was not finished with him. And he was to go encourage his brother. Now, Peter, when he saw that look, I mean, it all came back and and he was just so ashamed. And he went out and wept bitterly. But Jesus' purpose was... To remind Peter not just of the fact that he had failed, but of the fact that Jesus wasn't finished with him yet. He still had a job to do. And of course he goes back in the book of John tells us that he, he recommissions Peter, feed my sheep, or my, you know, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And uh, uh, recommissions him and again uh, uh, encourages him. But you see, Jesus gave and gave and gave. Aren't you glad that God doesn't wash his hands of us when we fail? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't say, okay, Roger, you, you've blown it again. I, I'm, I'm sick to death of you. You've had so many chances, and buddy, I'm done. Aren't you glad that he doesn't do that to us? He looks at us, and even in our failure, he loves us and is thinking about restoring us and using us for his glory. And I'm so grateful to, to the Lord for that kind of heart in our Savior.
that gives and gives and gives. The greatness of Jesus. What do we need to learn? Jesus suffers, he rules, he gives, and finally he speaks. He speaks. Jesus speaks. Verse 69. Now, before I read this, let me just say, who is Jesus speaking to here? He is speaking to the men who hate him. He is speaking to the men who have been plotting his death, and he knows it. He even says to them, if I tell you this, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to answer me if I, if I say something to you. Jesus says, I've got your number. I know, I know what you're about. But even still, he, he speaks to them the truth and seeks to, to give them a kernel of truth that they can take. And if they'll believe it, can bring them eternal life and salvation. You see, <clears throat> I think Jesus looked beyond the cross to the resurrection. You know what the book of Acts tells us? A number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Could it be that some of them were standing there that night when Jesus said these words? And Jesus, knowing their hatred for him, knowing that they wanted to drive nails and, and all of that, they wanted to see him dead and to see him gone. Jesus looks at them and he says, I love you. And I want you to be saved. And so even though you're going to take these words that I speak and use them as an excuse to put me to death, I'm going to tell you the truth because I love you. What does he say? Well, look, look at verse 67. This is what they are, they are asking him. They said, if you're the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. And here's what he says. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What is Jesus claiming for himself? In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, there is one called the Son of Man who goes before the Father. And the Jewish rabbis considered him to be divine. And he would be the one who would rule over the world and have a universal dominion. Psalm 110, God says to him, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And he's claiming to be the Son of God. That's why they follow up with the next question. Jesus is claiming to be divine. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be a ruling priest. Because if you go on in Psalm chapter 110. Uh, it speaks of the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's an eternal priesthood that Jesus would fulfill. Jesus is saying, I'm all these things that the Old Testament was pointing forward to. So in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 70, they, say, they ask, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. This was a way of affirming what they were saying. It doesn't sound like it in English, but it was a way of saying yes to them. And so they, they understand it that way. 
In verse 71, they say, why do we need any more testimony? They said, we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus claims to be the Son of God. And by the way, he says, when you, you say that I am, I can't help but thinking of that term, I am, that I am. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Jesus is claiming some very amazing things in these few verses. They reject it. And they take it and they use it to put him to death. But Jesus speaks to them all the same. I remember the year or so before I finally came to Christ and I'd heard message after message after message. Time after time after time I said no to Christ. Praise God he didn't give up on me. He loved me. Even though I had rejected him. Uh, I love those words uh, in the Gospel of John. When Jesus looks at those who are putting him to death and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the heart of our Savior. Jesus speaks. None of us could know Christ. None of us could, could have salvation had not God revealed himself to us. Had not God given us the, the gospel and shown us what it means and worked in our hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit, none of us could have come to faith. The fact that Jesus speaks means that we have the opportunity for eternal life. I heard a message of the gospel when I was 10 years old. The Holy Spirit of God convicted my heart. And eventually, over a period of a year, I surrendered my heart to Christ and accepted the gift of eternal life. And I've never been the same because He spoke. And He changed me. This is our great Savior. Jesus, in His greatest hour of difficulty... He suffers, he rules, he gives, and he speaks. Praise him, thank him, follow him, honor him. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we see how he acted and responded to people, Lord, we can't help but be amazed. We can't help but be amazed by how he responds to us. Thank you uh, for the scripture that says, Jesus said, you've seen me.